Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. 41 years you were with the ISO, is that right? 43. 43. Thank you for that clarification. And Chappie, I want to congratulate you, first of all, on a spectacular career with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. And uh, it was a pleasure to, to get to sit next to you on, on several occasions uh, to be your student at Butler. And not just at Butler, but um, I do still consider myself a student of yours because I, I, your ideas, the things that you taught me are still with me. Uh, as I practice and as I teach my students. So I feel like uh, I owe you a lot, and uh, I'm grateful that we can sit here and we can chat right now. And I want to say, uh, or I want to ask, first of all, in, in retirement, what exactly does that mean for you? I'm not sure. Uh, I worked all the way through June 30th, and the next day, I got in the car and drove down to South Carolina for a music festival that was a couple of weeks. And then I went over to stop to see my brother in Georgia on the way to see about my dad, which I'm, who I have to help check on a lot more often than we used to. Mm-hmm. And it's family stuff. Now, it, it may be more different starting next week, or is it this week? because the orchestra season is starting up. Uh-huh. August used to be a time, you know, time that we'd have for ourselves, so mm-hmm. I would do different things during August. Mm-hmm. So they're gonna start without you? They'll for the start first time without me. Long yes. time. Yeah. Uh, but you're still playing. Yep, I get up and I at least warm up daily. Mm-hmm. And, um, I plan to do that. I play at church sometimes, mm-hmm. especially Sunday nights, sometimes during the morning. And we have a program on Wednesday night, which is a ministry to adults with uh, disabilities. And it goes during the school terms. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be starting that, I think, next week or week after. And I'll play for that. Very nice. 
You've I got... usually play the cornet. One of our young men, when we did Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, and I blew my shofar, <laughs> he bolted right out of the room. <laughs> and another one of our young men came up afterwards and he said, you hurt my ears. Mm. Well, I figured, you know, some of our folks, some of our special friends have issues with a lot of loud noise and it just is too much. So I play my cornet, try to keep things mellow and mm -hmm. not too much. <laughs> I can hear you playing it now. In fact, I know you've such an affinity for beautiful melodies. That's one of the things that I really captured from you was just the idea of making everything lyrical. So when you talk about playing your cornet, I just hear, I hear hymns, I hear uh, art songs, I hear probably any tune that comes to mind. I don't know if you're... We do a lot of fun stuff, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cornet solos, themes and variations, or anything to that extent? Or I'm um, Wednesday night? No, nothing like that. <laughs> it's just usually just to lead help with the singing. Yeah, okay. Make sure they know where the melody is. Mm -hmm. And if they know really well where the melody is, then I might do a little fancy stuff for fun. Mm -hmm. During your time... With the Indianapolis Symphony, you taught uh, at several different schools, Butler University, mm -hmm. also the University of Indianapolis. For just a little while. Just a little while. Any other schools locally that you might have been affiliated with? Well, I taught at DePauw once or twice. I mean, a semester or two. And there was uh, there were several occasions where I taught at Indiana University for different teachers on sabbatical. Mm-hmm. I taught for Charlie Gorham, and I taught for Louis Davidson, and one time I taught for, um, oh, what's his name, he used to play in Cleveland, Bernie Adelstein. Oh, just passed away recently. Oh, yeah. He was pretty old, wasn't he? I believe so. Yeah. And Charlie just passed away, too. Charlie That's right. All the time teaching, uh, did you adhere to specific methods as far as teaching, or did you take each student as they came to you and customize things? And how how did your teaching, if we go back even to, to where you were taking lessons and going through school, Eastman School of Music and such, how did all of that fit into your teaching through those years? That's, That's a simple question. We've got you got five minutes to answer. <laughs> well, number one, it changed, and number two, I think it always had, and still does. It all depends on the student. If you're going to be a good teacher, you have to take any student right where they are. If they're really advanced, you just you can talk about the music and say, well, you can try this or try that, you know, if they don't have any physical problems. But most most everybody has some kind of issue or issues. Mm -hmm. So when somebody 
decides they want to take a lesson or lessons, I try to figure out in the first first lesson where is their biggest need. And how I approach that has changed through the years. I mean, I used to use a lot of, like my warm-up, for instance, it was very much along the lines of Max Schlossberg. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, had, I had one of my profs in school put a thought in my head, and, and this may be taking us off in a little different direction, but one day he was a low brass player and he coached our brass quintet and he taught the tuba players and the euphonium players and a few of the trombone players because most everybody else wanted to take from the chief, Emory Remington at the Eastman School. The Remington? Yeah, the Emory Remington, mm-hmm. yes. And, but Donald Knob was no slouch. He was a fine trombone player. He played bass trombone in the Rochester Phil. He played in the Eastman Brass Quintet. And he was a good teacher. But one time he had said, the purpose of the warm-up is to establish a concept for play. And my idea of the warm-up before that had been quite different. It was like, okay, if you do all of these calisthenics, then you're Mm going to be warmed up. Mm -hmm. And... And sometimes that didn't always pan out, but since I thought a lot of Don Don Knob, even though that was a foreign concept to me at the time, I decided I would file that away under future <laughs> future investigation. And it was a few years after I started playing with Indianapolis that I went to see a teacher in in Chicago named Arnold Jacobs, and I'd had some issues <laughs> in my own playing that I felt like I've been practicing so hard they ought to clear up, but they hadn't cleared up. And he got right down to the problem and <laughs> in the first lesson, and I thought, well, I, on the way home from Chicago, I thought, boy, how stupid could I be waiting so long to go see this guy when I'm this close to Chicago, although I would always get stressed out driving up there, at least when I got into the Chicago traffic. Um, but but I did it for about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to that idea of the warm-up, it was in one of my lessons that Mr. Jacobs said something about that connected the dots for me and it was like yeah wow now i understand what donald knob meant when he mm-hmm. said that mm-hmm. and and that when i start playing the trumpet in the morning it's not a matter of going through the motions and making sure that i'm breathing of course i have to breathe uh and that my chops are working but there has to be a real a real active mental <laughs> purposefulness mm-hmm. about what I want to produce. I'm not sure about that painting that's right behind you. 
I can see that the that the painter had ideas specific ideas about the shapes mm -hmm. really and it looks like pentagons or hexagons and um, so there was a purposefulness there mm -hmm. but but there's uh, other painting where I can see the concept more clearly what somebody is Mm -hmm. wants to produce you know that means and we, I'm sorry, well at any rate if, if a <laughs> painter has to have a concept in their mind's eye what they want to produce then a musician should also have a very clear concept in their mind's ear what they want to produce with their instrument I was not a direct student of Chickowitz, but I've read quite a bit about him. There's a book by uh, Luis Laboreal, I believe is the name, talks about his pedagogy. But one of the statements that Chickowitz would make, which is something that I use with my students, is a two-part statement. And he would say to his students, every day remember the beautiful sound the trumpet can make, and then practice the free and unrestricted release of the wind. There was the aural part of that. You had to know what it is you wanted to sound like. And then the physical part of it, you had then to produce the sound. And the way you're describing things with Mr. Jacobs and this, this revelation, everything's coming together, that seems to be what you're describing is having to have that, that idea in your head before you even pick up the horn, what it is you want to sound like. Exactly. Uh, it's... We... A lot of times we learn quite effectively as young players. Like my very first teacher, Walter Meck, was of German stock. He came down from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Alabama, and he played beautifully. He had a beautiful, warm sound, and he played cleanly, and he played in tune. <laughs> He would play for us, and he would play with us. I can remember playing duets with him and even playing certain studies where we would be playing in unison together. So if I wasn't in tune, it was really obvious. <laughs> and people would say about Wally Mech students, people called him Wally, mm -hmm. and say, well, oh, you must be a Wally Mech student. You're so easy to to sit down and play with. And he, he taught trumpet players and trombone players and horn players. And matter of fact, two of my friends from Alabama at the Eastman School of Music, they were older, were trombone players and they were Wally Mack students. But he put that concept into my mind Mm -hmm. about, okay, this is the way a trumpet is supposed to sound. And that was, that was a treasure. And when, after I stud, started studying with Mr. Jacobs, what happened was that I had to kind of go back and <laughs> start reapproaching the trumpet more like I did when I was a nine or a 10 year old, which is, I was nine years old when I started taking lessons with Mr. Mech. Mm -hmm. It was before I was allowed to, before they 
let us play in the public school program. I got to do that in the fourth grade. Wow. But the third grade is when I started lessons. Mm. And that was kind of interesting because then they, it was like, do we put this guy on the beginner band? <laughs> so you were playing beyond beginner Oh, definitely. Level at that point. And my dad really worked on the music director mm-hmm. of the um, for the band, the band director, and got him to put me in the advanced band. And it wasn't too long before I was head of the section in the advanced mm-hmm. band because I'd been studying with a good teacher, mm-hmm. and the trumpet just seemed to be a natural thing. A lot of times, and this happened to me starting in junior high, we start getting, as our minds become more analytical, (laughs) if we're not careful and somebody's not watching out for us, we can get ourselves into trouble. And I did. I got a book. I had an autographed copy of a book that uh, Philip Farkas wrote. I got to meet Philip Farkas when I was a ninth grader Mm -hmm. because my trumpet teacher drove us up, got to spend a weekend at Indiana University, got to hear the opera Parsifal, got to meet one of the trumpet teachers, Bill Adam, Mm -hmm. and some of his students and got to go out to Mr. Farkas's house where he just published his new book and I had a, got him to autograph it. Is this the art of breathing? No, or it's the art, art of, of, art of brass, art playing. brass playing. Yes, yeah. right. He had already done the art of horn playing and later on he did a book, The Art of Musicianship, but I took that book and I started reading it and I decided, oh, if I want to be a better trumpet player, Here's my key. And I got too analytical and I started trying to do some things differently than what my teachers had been teaching me. And my teacher at the time, the one who had taken me to IU, left that summer. He had been playing principal in Birmingham and went to play principal in the Atlanta Symphony. So the new trumpet teacher that uh, a trumpet player who the new principal trumpet for Birmingham mm-hmm. um, did not know what had transpired he didn't know where I had been the previous year mm-hmm. and he didn't know that I was because I didn't tell him that I was figuring things out or at least I thought I was figuring <laughs> things out but I was I was kind of I was messing myself up mentally and physically. Were you trying to change embouchures? Well, I didn't try to change embouchure on purpose, but I ended up doing it as I tried to use less and less mouthpiece pressure. And if you you try to use no pressure at all, you're going to have to change the way... Mm -hmm you use your embouchure and uh, and I messed things up when I tried to do that and uh, 
So I started in the tenth grade. I started having some problems. Did you realize what had happened? Did you know at that point no, that this I was didn't. coming from that? But the teacher that had started me, when I played for district contest that fo- the spring, the following spring, um, Walter Meck, he was the judge. He was <laughs> my judge at solo and ensemble. And he said, uh, Chappie, he taught at a boys prep school, private school south of Birmingham. Really good school. Small, small classes, wonderful student to teacher ratio and really good teachers. He said, if you can pass the entrance test, I can get you a good scholarship to come to this school because we need somebody in our brass choir. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a band. They had a boys glee club that was really good and they had about a 10-piece brass choir. Mm-hmm. And I was able to pass that test and get to go to school with smart guys. It was a boy school. Mm-hmm. Did you sing in the Glee Club too? I sure did. And that was a <laughs> fantastic musical experience. It really was. Um, we would sing in the Glee Club three days a week and two days a week we would do our brass choir. And the Glee Club director, it was during the Glee Club hour. I mean, they did it five days a week, but mm-hmm. he figured we could read music, we'd learn our stuff for the choir, mm-hmm. and we did. And he'd let us off two days a week. But Mr. Mech started straightening things out. Mm-hmm. So what I'd screwed up in, within a year, it took him about two years to get squared away and for me to start getting my strength back and uh, so when I started he he was an Eastman grad himself and um, he encouraged me to audition and I did and made it into the, the Eastman school and I was not a strong player at least I didn't think so at that time I did not have much endurance or the mm-hmm. I had lost some range, mm-hmm. I think. And he, uh, but he got me on a good path. And so I did not have to go through an embouchure change as a college student. And I've, I've agonized over that. Sometimes I've had a college student with a problem there and I think, okay, how far is this guy likely to go or this mm-hmm. gal? Mm-hmm. And I have to I have to sit down and ask him, oh, well, are you just going to be a band? Do you just want to be a band director? Maybe we should leave this alone. Mm-hmm. If you've gone as far as you want to go on the instrument, okay. And you don't want to continue as a serious performer? Mm-hmm. And I've gone the other direction with a player after sitting down with them and saying, now, if we do this, you've got to understand you're going to go backwards for a while. <laughs> you will. You will lose your control. Mm-hmm. You'll lose endurance. You're going to lose range before you can go back. 
get back to where you were, it'll take a while. Mm -hmm. But then you'll have the potential to go further. And I can think of one instance in particular with a young man in a school we both know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he indicated that he was willing to do that. But he did not do... He did not follow through mm-hmm. on his end. and it, Just for the record, we're not talking about me, because I would know by no, this point... No, we were not talking... <laughs> definitely not talking about you, Larry. Uh, yeah. I don't think you had any... You didn't ever have that issue, at least not when I, no, since I but, knew you. But for the record, I will remind you that in our second lesson, you said, Larry, I have had a number of students over the years. Some we've worked on solos. Some we've worked on excerpts. But you were going to have to go back to the very beginning. <laughs> and, I, and I reminded you of that recently, and you, you said, no, no, I certainly didn't say that. And I said, yes, yes Oh, my did. goodness. Well, I but hope... it was the most beneficial thing that could have happened at that point. Well, I'm glad it was beneficial because I don't... Well, I didn't know it at that time. You know, I didn't realize. I mean, I was crushed. <laughs> you know, here I was... Uh, oh, my. ...thinking I had things pretty well together. But yeah, but you're right, you know, and, and sometimes you get somebody who's dedicated enough... Uh, to, to that ideal that they're striving for and that they will follow through, so. Yeah, well, that particular <laughs> student, oh man, it was really frustrating and it was embarrassing too because, he, you know, you have to play for the whole department when you do mm-hmm. your juries. Mm-hmm. So let's go to Eastman. Um, you're in good company, not just with professors or your, your trumpet teacher, but oh, also... Yeah. Uh, student colleagues. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about who was there. Well, there was a young man that I'd met in high school in North Carolina at a music camp, Brevard, Brevard, North Carolina, and he was from New Jersey. And his name was Philip Collins. I should say his name is Philip Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had not seen him for a couple of years after the summer we spent together in North Carolina because he'd gone to Interlochen in Michigan. And he'd also been studying in New York City with the likes of uh, Mel Broyles, principal with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, and William Vacchiano, principal with the New York Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. And I could tell you, while I was going through my embouchure change, he had made... (laughs) He had made huge strides mm-hmm. on the trumpet. Mm-hmm. And when he came in as a freshman at the Eastman School, he could play better than anybody in the whole school. Wow. That included upperclassmen and graduate students. And, mm-hmm. and he was pretty soon after he arrived, he was made the second trumpet player of the Eastman Faculty Brass Quintet. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Who was teaching at that time? Well, I'm trying to remember who the first year was. Sidney Meir was the main teacher in mm-hmm. the school. Vinny mentioned him. He had studied with uh, uh, well. uh, Maybe the second year, Dick Jones came in. 
who also came in and to play first in the Rochester Philharmonic. He was one of the teachers. Uh, the assistant director of the school, Dan Patrilak, was a very fine trumpet player. And that's not a name I'm familiar with. Was he known Phil, beyond? He East played. Hall? He was principal trumpet in the faculty brass quintet. Mm -hmm. Really good player. And Phil got Mr. Patrilak to teach him. So Phil Collins was Dan Patrilak's only student besides hmm. directing the stu the school. Uh, well, he was the assistant director, but because the uh, the director was having some problems, um, Mr. Patrilak was pretty much the de facto director of the school. He was the one who was always there mm -hmm. and always with it. So anyone from the school knows what I'm talking about. Anybody that went to the gotcha. Eastman School of Music, certainly during the 60s. Um, <laughs> but he was, a, he was quite a gentleman mm -hmm. and a fine musician. And Did you ever get any lessons with him? No, I didn't. You know who I really wanted to study with? The one was Emory Remington, mm. but he wouldn't teach any trumpet players. Did, <laughs> did you tell him you had studied with trombone players previously? Uh, well, I hadn't. I'd studied with a trumpet player who taught other trombone, taught trombone players, but not at that point I hadn't. No. Got it. The idea of studying with a low brass player first dawned on me when I was at Eastman. And then, so it wasn't such a big deal for me to think of studying with a tuba player. Mm -hmm. Especially a tuba player who had played the trumpet. We're talking about Arnold Jacobs. He had started on the trumpet. Well, and just aside from great brass players, they're great musicians. Oh, yeah. Which I think is as important. Yeah. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. So, you get to Eastman and your course of study is... Music education. No kidding. I never knew that. Yeah. I thought for sure you had... I was a public school round. music instrumental major. and With every intent on becoming a band director, is that right? Well, yes, I guess so. <laughs> Although I didn't... I always thought it would be nice to perform. And at the Eastman School, uh, different from many universities <laughs> and right. conservatories, um... I got the same amount of instruction. I got to play in the same ensembles. So I played in the, by the time I was a, let's see, a junior, I was playing in the Eastman Wind Ensemble, and I was playing in the, played in the Eastman Philharmonia. Who was conducting the Eastman Wind Ensemble at that point? Donald Huntsberger. 
I knew that, but I wanted to hear yeah. you, you yeah. mention he that. Was a, he was a wonderful musician, and I never, as a student, and I think this happens in a lot of schools, as a student, I did not appreciate that man <laughs> nearly as much as I should have um, about what a thoroughly competent musician and conductor as well as arranger uh, that he was. He was really good. And it was after I got out I realized, boy, <laughs> not everybody that stands up in front of a band or an orchestra is this is nearly this good. I got to see him one time a few years ago, maybe 15 years ago, 20, <laughs> I can't remember. But I got to tell him that, and I was glad that I did. He seemed to appreciate that, mm -hmm. to tell him how I didn't really appreciate how good he was until after I got, but, got know, away from there. That actually goes back to something you said earlier about how you had studied with... Um, Pardon me, I forget the name. But then you you had filed that way. You said for future, future reference. For future yeah. reference, who? What's the teacher you were referring that to? Was that was Donald Knob. Okay, so K N A U B. So you had talked about that and how you'd filed that away. But that what he taught you didn't really come to fruition until you got to yet another teacher. Mm -hmm. There are times in our careers, both in in school and playing wise, where we're simply not able to receive or process information and it's a maturity it's a it's a journey to get to the point to where you're like uh, that light bulb goes on mm -hmm. <laughs> or you get a, a teacher that says it in just the right way that that makes it click and you realize oh that information was given to me 20 years ago <laughs> and it's it's interesting that you say that because you you realize that and you've probably had a number of students that are like this who just aren't ready for the information that it, it's not getting through because they're just not at that level that's right maybe not a question more more of an observation i guess than yeah anything. sometimes sometimes <laughs> it's a matter of if i just keep the student is thinking, if I just keep working harder and longer doing it the way I've been doing it, it's all going to get, it's all going to clear up. It's all going to get better. Mm -hmm. And it takes the realization, the same kind of realization that, that I came to um, before I went to see Mr. Jacobs, that, you know, I've been working at this a long time and I've been spending a lot of a lot of time at it. I've been thinking hard. And there's certain things that are just not clearing up. I think I need help. Hmm. And sometimes I think my particular, I feel like I'm more successful a lot of times with an older student who's reached that particular point and then they're ready to, to listen and say, oh, I never thought about it that way. Hmm but it makes sense. And when a person openly accepts it and says, okay, uh, it's a lot more about, it's a, 
it's about a lot more than how much air I'm using <laughs> or how good my embouchure is. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it is about how much wind we're using mm-hmm. or whether we're not blowing uh, enough or whether we're blowing too hard. But it's mostly, I think, for most of us, it's mostly what we're thinking about what mm-hmm. we want to produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't care how good your technique is or how good your embouchure or how good your respiration is. If you don't have a good sound musical concept, you're not going to get good music. Your, con- your concept of sound... Uh, live concerts, I mean, and I'm, we're going back then, even before you picked up the trumpet for the very first time. Uh, you probably grew up in a house where, I, I think I know this, where there was music, people either singing mm-hmm. or playing. Not from my father's side, by the way, but from my mother's. Mm-hmm. She sang and played the piano. And probably the first trumpet player that I heard on a recording was one of my mother's Harry James recordings. Mm. <laughs> what a fabulous player. Yeah. I think the guy was a real natural. Just He used some weird... You ever seen a mouthpiece like he used? Oh, was that the Perduba? The double cup? Double cup. I, I have one of those. <laughs> I may have had two at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, different sizes. And I... I couldn't ever make them work. <laughs> so the guy had to be a fantastic player to, mm-hmm. to get the kind of results out mm-hmm. of that, that that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were exposed to music early on. I get that's where I'm headed with that. Yeah. Is, you know, you're not just a concept of a trumpet sound, but no. just a musical concept, just yeah. an idea of melody and where things go and where things belong, and even some personal expression, probably at that point. Personal interpretation of of things. Uh, And then, okay, so you mentioned uh, Harry James. Um, Beyond that, who then then did you start to listen to or seek out? Well, you're talking about, like, recordings and stuff? Sure. Um, Or or live concerts. I would, my, the live concerts that I heard were mostly the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. And that was the orchestra where I was introduced to a lot of the literature that we that we play. Um, not only that, but I had a general music general music teacher in elementary school. You talk about the way things start lining up for you. And he was his name was Herbert Levinson. And he just happened to be the concert master of the Birmingham Symphony. I mean, those guys did not get paid for diddly. They get paid a little better now, but they still don't get paid very much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so they all had to do other jobs. A lot of them were band directors or general music teachers. Um, my band director in elementary school later after I got out of the army band and went to play in Birmingham was one of my colleagues in the orchestra. 
that was really funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, I, I, and I think he got a little kick out of it that, you know, I'd been in his elementary school band and they, we played in the orchestra mm -hmm. together after that. Well, I can attest to that feeling. <laughs> yeah, well, I do when somebody, you know, mm -hmm. like you or other students have come in uh, and they're doing well. It makes a teacher feel like, well, maybe I wasn't a totally total disaster. <laughs> At least I, I didn't ruin them, or somebody else was able to rescue them. <laughs> maybe that's what it was. I was rescued <laughs> by someone else after after our time together. <laughs> well, whatever. I'm yeah. thankful for that. Um, but I listened to my teachers. I had a. I was not able to continue with Mr. Mech for a few years because of some logistics about getting to lessons. And so I would take with different trumpet players who'd come in for a couple of years and play with the Birmingham Symphony. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember a guy named Barry Shank. And he taught me a little bit about style, pop style. I remember working on a piece by Morton Gould and I... I've never thought about some of the how you play certain rhythms or how you do what you do with certain uh, note lengths when you're playing in a different style. He was the first teacher who actually taught me about wow. alternate styles. And how old were you at this point? Oh, maybe 12? <laughs> okay, well, not, not too far, not too far into it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's interesting you say that because I can think of a lot of times where you don't get that specific kind of instruction for style even until you get to college. You know, most yeah. of the time it seems like middle school and high school band directors uh -huh. are just trying to remember you to get you to remember to blow through the little end of the, the instrument. Well, they have band directors have a very challenging job. When you look at how many people are doing what they're doing all at the same time, they... But one thing, they can't keep up with everybody. <coughs> and another mm -hmm. thing, it's got to be <laughs> mentally just an exhausting kind of a proposition. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry. <laughs> well, I get to spend a little extra, extra time uh, doing... <laughs> I, I hate to call it spiritual things because we ought to, every day we ought to be doing. I know what you mean, though. Yeah. But the focus is definitely yeah. there. So, and it's not necessarily Sunday. I mean, because the orchestra's day off would have been Monday. Usually Mondays would, became that day. Mm -hmm. And I would get to spend extra time listening to teachers, you know, like Robbie Zacharias mm -hmm. or Chuck Swindoll or Alistair Begg. We just had. I think Alistair Begg may be down there in Nashville too. But anyway, we had, some of us had a chance to go and play some orchestral <coughs> music on the first day of the conference, which is Monday. Oh. So you're taking your horn. Yeah. And then afterwards I'm going to go see my dad. 
Birmingham is about Birmingham. 190 miles south of Nashville. So you know, when I worked on the cruise ship with a bunch of Brits, and I said Birmingham, Alabama. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Birmingham what? You mean Birmingham? Birmingham. Yes. Birmingham. I've been there. Yeah. They have a very nice concert hall, and it's very interesting. It's modern. They can change the size of the performance space. Hmm. I mean, the size of the audience space. They just have all these movable partitions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So if you're having a a little bitty concert, you know, a chamber concert, a small ensemble, mm-hmm. you don't have to play in such a huge room, especially nice. if you don't have a huge uh, audience either. Mm-hmm. What's the new space in Hamburg? It just opened, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's gorgeous. I saw it being, from the outside, I was there, saw it being finished, and it looked Koenig's Hall or something like that, but it's just... Koenig, that means king. Yes, but it's, and then they showed the inside, a drone flying through the inside showing the space, and it looks like it's expandable and adjustable, and but the audience surrounds the stage. Oh boy, so it's a modern hall. It, very modern, okay. but but gorgeous. Um, two weekends ago, um, Moody Bible Institute, Jenny and I came to a marriage conference here. Oh, cool. And uh, trying to think of the speaker's name, you would know him for sure, and I'm, I'm blanking. I'll email it to you, but boy, was... Whew, was was he a uh, five love languages guy? Yep, that's it. That was the conference. Oh, what's his name? Because I listen to him sometimes on the radio. He's got a regular radio program. Yeah. Oh, he's good. Yeah. Oh, he's good. That's hard. And hard being married. <laughs> I don't know. Twenty-two <laughs> years so far. Well, good Coming for up you. on twenty. Oh no, this this will be twenty-two. Next month it'll uh, be forty-seven for us. Forty-seven. Yep. <laughs> That's fantastic. About twenty years of marital bliss. <laughs> that sounds like a Don Rickles or a uh, one of those older communities. Well, George Burns kind of joke, you know. You know, in this uh, Masterworks <laughs> Festival that I've been participating in since two thousand, starting in two thousand and one, and these the people that I'm going down will be working with in Nashville are mm. people affiliated with that. Oh, okay. Um, but at any rate. We would have Bible studies, and we had young people in our Bible studies sometimes in their 20s. We had people, married couples in the Bible study, mm-hmm. and we had people that became couples and got married, I mean, through the years, and now we're Facebook friends with them and watching their children grow up, you know, <laughs> posting all this stuff, but I would kind of shock them sometimes not meaning to just shock them, but to give them a little dose of reality because they've got all these stars in their eyes. And I'm thinking, well, just <laughs> just remember the first 25 years are the toughest. So you got to... <laughs> but that's true. I mean, it was true for us. I would have never imagined the, the hurdles we've we've gone through. Not oh, the, you know. Well, if but. you think... If you think... If I only get to marry this person. Once I'm married to this person, all my problems are going to be over. 
but the thing is that we all bring our baggage. All my problems became her problems, too. <laughs> yeah, we just put more it's, of them together. Yeah. Um, we were talking about... We Go ahead. We were talking yesterday, and the thing about... You were talking about the other students at the Eastman School. Oh, right. Like, especially in my class... I think we had 13 trumpet players or something like that. We had more than 10 in my freshman class, which was a lot for Eastman. They wouldn't necessarily have that many in every class. Mm -hmm. But at least that's how it started out. And a bunch of us were music ed majors. I think we had a comp major or two. Uh, But at any rate... It got me thinking about this whole deal of peer pressure, not in a negative way, but in a positive way, because I already mentioned Phil Collins being in my class. If I wanted to know the kind of standard that I needed to strive for all I had to do was walk across the hall and listen to Phil play when he was practicing and man that was a pretty high standard it it really motivated me matter of fact I recently sent him a letter you know sharing with him about how much I felt like he helped me through the years I mean we met in high school oh at Brevard that's yeah, so we've known each other for 45 years. Wow. No, more than that. More like 50. <laughs> yeah. That's remarkable. More than 50 because, see, I graduated from high school in 66, and I met him before then, and I've already met, missed my 50th class reunion mm-hmm. for high school. Wow. Had to work. (laughs) Well, at any rate, I got to thinking, wow, this guy helped motivate me all the way back then, and then in college even more so. So was it what you were hearing just in his playing? Was it methods he was using? Was it... Uh, Not so much methods. It's just, man, this guy played the trumpet like a real professional. I mean, he, for all intents and purposes, he was a professional as he came in. He certainly played on a very high professional level Mm -hmm. as a freshman. And like I said, he ended up playing playing in the faculty brass quintet, Mm -hmm. recorded with them, toured Japan with them, (laughs) as a little kid with the big guys. I'm sure that was a treat for him. Uh, was there a graduate program? Yeah. And yeah. so he was still playing above the graduate students at yeah. this point. Wow. <laughs> Does he still live in Cincinnati? Yep. Still does. Mm-hmm. Me and Sandy, and they have six children and a whole bunch of grandchildren. And his youngest son plays in the Indianapolis Symphony in our viola section. 
No, I should say our viola section. I guess I can't say that anymore. Yes, you can. Out of the orchestra. Yeah, that's Uh, that's still your family down there. Yeah, (laughs) it feels like family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great vibe with the ISO. Not to shift gears for a second, but you know, the few times I've stepped in there. In fact, when I interviewed Conrad, uh, that's something we discussed: is the the unusual, friendly vibe in the ISO and I know every family's got its oh, yeah. blemishes but it's it's unique and I think it's a, wow. a remarkable thing it speaks to the people and the leadership when when I think about my tenure with the ISO and I'm thinking well yeah we had some irritations going on but it, more for the most part, I would say in the brass section, I mean, it was, we were friends with each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there are places where that's not the case. I remember talking to a brass player, this is over 20 years ago, who was coming to audition for a key spot in our brass section. Mm-hmm. And I was riding him around, and um, he's told me about a famous orchestra that he played extra in and he said boy the the level of malevolence backstage (laughs) is really intense and I thought man why would somebody want to work there and play there Mm -hmm. except that it paid well Mm -hmm. so if you live and work with people that that you can be friends with, that you can respect, doing what you like to do. Boy, that is one just huge blessing. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like I've had my, you know, God's blessed my socks off. Well, I look at your section that you had, the ones that I've known, Bob Wood probably Mm -hmm. being the longest uh, that you sat next to any particular person. But Bob Day was somebody that I was fortunate to meet right after he retired and played with him in a, a community band, the Indianapolis yeah. Symphonic Band. What a gem of a person yep. he was. And uh, like uh, too many other people, lost way too soon. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I look at people like Dan Gosling, Alan Miller, yeah. uh, Galando, those that yeah. come in and substitute. And I think you're surrounded by some really terrific, yep. terrific people, not just players, but people. Yep. Really supportive. Mm-hmm. Helpful, wonderful attitudes, mm-hmm. really good players. Yes. <laughs> yes. What else do you need? Oh, well, let's go back. Um, so there are a couple of things you had mentioned yesterday. You talked about uh, some time at IU filling in for some teachers on sabbatical. Yeah. Um, and then I think we were starting to get into methods, uh, some oh, specific gosh. things. And not that you need to... Okay do too much on that, but I'm just kind of curious, maybe let's talk about learning style, you know, and your style would have been, seems one more of things being modeled for you. Yeah. And but, how did you adapt that into your teaching when you started teaching? Well, I tried to play for my students and say, look, can you make make it sound like this? Because that's the way I learned. That is the way we all learn to speak. <laughs> I mean, how many people 
Well, people try to learn a foreign language, for instance, starting out of a textbook. <laughs> Boy, that's really hard. That's not the way you learned your first language. Right. And you talk to people from other countries who came to visit this country or maybe another country that was not their own, and you find out, oh, I learned to speak English by watching the television. <laughs> or, and I think about, well, boy, there's some things you might learn on the television that the might good, not the be the English. best English. Uh, yeah. Or listen to the radio, or listen to, listen to songs. Mm -hmm. But I think we learn that way. That's the, that's the best way to learn, there are especially students. if you're talking about music. <laughs> Well, of course, but you know, there are students, and you even alluded to this a little bit early on in the interview, is um, becoming over-analytical. You yourself talked oh, about Oh yeah, I, I went through that. that, and that was kind of a a backward step. I, Mr. Jacobs talked about, used a term he called paralysis by analysis, mm -hmm. and he said sometimes dealing with students who were really very well educated was more difficult than dealing with other people who weren't so well educated. <laughs> Got all those degrees and you've had to do an awful lot of book learning and get very analytical. Well, if you've got something wrong with your car, because he would mention that, he mm -hmm. would use that as an illustration, then you go to a mechanic and then he looks under the hood and mm -hmm. listens to it and observes and he's he's analyzing what's going on and an analysis involves asking questions but when you perform if you're asking questions <laughs> is this right is this what i want to do oh you it's like you're gonna it's, you're gonna be like tripping over your shoelaces mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. trying to walk so you you can't think that way you have to, he used the illustration, you need to tell a story. Mm -hmm. It's a musical story, but you're still telling a story. That might be one of the things I remember most out of, out of first lessons with you, yeah. was everything, you, you said if it didn't have lyrics to it, make some up. Well, that can be very helpful, and I've mm -hmm. known some very prominent performers who said they did exactly the same thing and they might be silly lyrics or but it didn't matter at least yeah. it would give it direction it oh give yeah it a, a, i can think of some mean lyrics that, that <laughs> <laughs> people made up about <laughs> other people when we would play certain famous pieces <laughs> yeah musicians are like everybody else we can be mean too mm-hmm were there any particular methods? I, I know, uh, of course, Schlossberg, Arvin, Brandt. Any oh. particular things that you think are... Well, I, had to, I had to do a lot of Herbert L. Clark when I was a... Technical studies. Yeah. I never got into the, the characteristic studies. I had to do Arvin. And I had um, different people who had approached the Arvin book differently. I mm -hmm. think... I think that book is really rich. And there are people uh, like Alan Bazzuti, Alan Bazzuti who 
added to it, mm-hmm. um, and that's fine. Very creative. I, I've added to it. Mm-hmm. There's some studies in there where I feel like, well, you can you can make this more interesting by, you know, putting subdivisions and of notes uh, in, into fives, for instance, and mm-hmm. not just twos and threes and fours mm-hmm. and sixes. People complain about the Arban not addressing range, and I think, well, all you have to do is transpose, <laughs> transpose take it, it up, up as high as you want, and that's right. there's no reason you can't utilize anything you out of that can, book. You can, well, last night I was playing out of a book that Phil Collins gave me. It's a classical collection, and I was working on my piccolo trumpet. You have to really think when you're doing some of those transpositions on the piccolo trumpet, and mm-hmm. I have to think when I'm using my fourth valve. If I don't practice using the fourth valve, I'm going to be a real klutz when it mm-hmm. comes time to perform. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to work that into some of my technical practice, mm-hmm. just like practicing Herbert L. Clark with three valves. Well, you can do some of those things with a four-valve instrument, too. You don't have to play screaming high, but you can work on your tone and your mm-hmm. intonation. And it's, it's funny because when people first start on the piccolo trumpet, I, I say, you can't gotta make friends with the instrument first <laughs> learn to make it sound good it's but not near as forgiving as a as a b flat is it it's really easy to sound ugly <laughs> <laughs> it really is mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you can't blow so hard and you have to you have to study that instrument it's a finesse instrument for sure yeah mm-hmm Thinking about your teaching, how much did that affect your your own approach to the instrument, whether it was on the stage or just in your own practice? Well, at first, I think some of my teaching might have hurt me, and I think it has hurt some performers who started out really well, and then they they found themselves in teaching positions where they were dealing with students with problems and so they would tell the student to do things that they had been taught very traditional mm-hmm. approach to the instrument things about breath support and there were things that I was taught about breath support that I don't think they're correct at all I'm sure they're not would you care to elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, this whole approach, hard gut approach to playing a wind instrument. If you're going to blow out, your lungs are going to have to collapse. I mean, this is pure physics. <laughs> you can't be just pushing down and blowing out. And I'm, Mr. Jacobs addressed that with me too. That mm-hmm. was, I'm thinking about one particular time when I went up there. I'd had a little accident while I was working on an automobile and cracked a rib. Mm. Overexerting myself, trying to get a heat, an old heater hose off of a firewall. I mean, it was as hard as a rock. Mm-hmm. 
and I felt something pop while I had all my weight. You were right here. You had a lot of torque on whatever. I did. Boy, I said, I'm going to get this baby off of here. And I did, (laughs) but I cracked a rib. And so my doctor put me in a rib brace, and when it was around December. So we were playing the Messiah at our church, and I remember playing that piccolo trumpet with this brace on. I thought, (laughs) I'm going to explode. This Mm. is terrible. So I'd started taking lessons with Mr. Jacobs prior to that, and I called him up, and he said, well, yeah, you should come up here, and I'm sure it'll be worth your while. And it was. And he addressed something that we had not talked about before, and that was that I was overpressurizing. I had all kinds of pressure inside, but that didn't mean that I had the flow Mm -hmm. to the instrument that I needed, the wind flow. Mm And uh, it was interesting that the following Easter, we were doing the B minor mass. And there was a section in the B minor mass, which on previous occasions, when I'd get there, I'd always get dizzy. I would start seeing spots, spots in front of my eyes right before you start to black out. And I'd have to back off for a while if I wanted to stay keep, conscious. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. So uh, I went through all the rehearsals and the performances, and it didn't happen. And I felt like, and it sounded better too. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Sometimes things have to go wrong before you figure out what's, what's right. Mm-hmm. So you played those on a broken and healing rib. Those performances? Not the B minor mass. No, that oh, was okay. months later. Oh, okay. okay. No, I was fine by then. But I can tell you, playing the trumpet when you have a brace on, <laughs> mm, that's not good. <laughs> For one thing, you're having to think too hard about getting enough wind in, into the instrument, and you, your thought processes need to be on the music that you're playing, not on how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. You think about uh, adjustments you've had to make in your playing, if you've had to make any uh, for certain repertoire uh, or certain conductors, uh, and not to name names on anything, but do you feel like you've had to negatively adjust your playing over the years in the symphony? Or Let's anyone? not say negative. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll find a better word for that. Every Every... Every conductor is going to be different. And if the conductor is your music director, not a guest conductor, Mm -hmm. not an assistant, but he's the boss, Mm -hmm. say, okay, this boss wants to take things in this orchestra in a certain direction. So when we do Beethoven or when we do Mahler or whatever we're doing, we're going to do it a certain way with this music director. You, you'd better figure it, figure it out mm-hmm. as quickly as possible and start conforming to the way the boss mm-hmm. wants to do it. And I had one, two, three, four different music directors and when I 
first came in, it was between music directors. Eisler Solomon had been the music director mm -hmm. before I came, and they had a resident conductor because Mr. Solomon had, had some serious health problems. Mm -hmm. So he was not conducting anymore. He conducted one rehearsal after John Nelson took over as music director, and he had a stroke during that rehearsal or during the lunch break between the morning and afternoon rehearsal. So mm -hmm. it was only one rehearsal, and then and then Mr. Nelson had to take over and, and do the rest of the rehearsals and the concerts mm -hmm. that week. But you have to figure out each one, and you better figure, I have a way I want to do a particular piece. Mm -hmm. That's great. <laughs> it's, and I tell people that going into auditions, I said, you should play it the way you think it ought to be. I mean, educate yourself the best you can. And the first time you play it for them, play it that way because that's probably gonna be the most convincing way you play it. You'll play it the best that way, mm -hmm. but be ready to listen. Okay, if they like you, they may very well stop you and ask you to play it again and change something. And listen carefully to what they, what they tell you and say, okay, what's that gonna sound like? Mm -hmm. and try to sound that way. Don't get uptight. Just make sure you understand what they're telling you. This makes me think about, I remember you telling me about your audition with the Indianapolis Symphony. Oh, boy. And how you had not played, I can't remember if it was Magnificat or another I think it was Christmas a, oratorio. I think it was a Christmas oratorio. And how you hadn't, uh, was it the finale? That you hadn't, I've forgotten. Played before, but uh, they left bum, you alone. No, that's from the B minor mass. I'm trying to remember what it was, but at any rate, I, I'd played other Bach things, um, but I hadn't played that. And they had, for that audition, they had at least four works by Bach that's on unusual. the list. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the list that far ahead of time. So I figured, well, there's certain things you better make sure you woodshed. Like, I remember Prokofiev's Fifth is on there. Mm -hmm. You'd better know the fingerings. <laughs> you don't want to be reading that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I figured, oh, I'll, you have to budget time. And I got to that spot, and they wanted it, and it kind of was kind of quick. And I was, I was playing it, but it was not very convincing. And I was, I must have tripped on something. And at one point, they said, "Would you like to practice that?" <laughs> now this was in the finals, and I'd been the last guy to play. And then they took a very short break and started the finals. So they were kind to me and let me be the last guy in the finals too. But still. I'd played a long time in the preliminary round, mm -hmm. and by this time, I was getting really tired. <laughs> and 
I'm thinking, if if I practice this, if I play through it, I'm going to be too tired. My chops will just go. Mm-hmm. So they said, would you like to practice this? I said, sure. <laughs> and so we'll take a break for five minutes. So they walked off. And while they, when they left, I solfeged it and fingered it. And that's all. They came back and they asked me to play it again and I nailed it. <laughs> and I think that was the last thing I played for them before they said, we're gonna decide. Mm-hmm. So they took their break and decided and I was the most surprised guy there. <laughs> so that's unusual. And that was probably a one day process back at, at that point. It was, the audition. yeah. Not drawn out over two or three days and no. and then trial weeks as it is now. Which I think is, in my personal opinion, a great format to give somebody the oh yeah time to sit with the orchestra and see if it's a good fit. Yeah. And with some people, a few people, the trial was not successful on their part. Mm-hmm. So... Chappie, a lot of great stuff. I'm, I'm thinking I may call you back and sit together for another hour or two at some point. Oh, boy. <laughs> but um, I, I really appreciate you sharing everything you have. There's just some wonderful things um, that you've got to offer. Um, I personally want to thank you for being a great teacher for me and for contributing to Indianapolis, the music scene here. And I wish you the best in your retirement, which I hope is... Uh, productive with visiting family and kids and grandkids and grandkids on the way. Um, But thank you for your time. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.